hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Looking forward to going into a little bit more of Abram's story, though, spoiler alert, this is going to be a pretty short story about Abram, and we're really going to talk about somebody else. So, sorry, Abram. He got his dap last week. I said that he was perhaps the most important non-God figure in all of Scripture. So I feel like I gave Abram his due there. But today, there's another figure who will take our time. I'll leave you in suspense until then. So um, at the end of this little story, which seems a little random uh, in the Abram narrative, uh, we're going to be introduced to a character Again, I'm going to keep you on the edge of your seat. It's Genesis 14, so in case you just can't wait until I get there, we are going to be uh, looking at Genesis 14 today to kind of be our springboard. Um, but really, uh, what happens in Genesis 14, up before verse 14, which is where I'm going to start reading today, um, some kings uh, in Canaan fight each other, and Lot, Abram's nephew, gets captured. I just summarized all 13 of those verses for you. There's a lot of uh, difficult to pronounce names in that little section. So if you are uh, really interested in trying to maybe do some like vocal exercises, that might be a good spot to read those out loud if you if you can, if you dare. Uh, but basically what happens is these, these kings, these uh, just normal kings in the area, uh, remember this is before the nation of Israel has actually been founded. Um, they have a disagreement as kings tend to, and they have a fight. Lot ends up kind of caught in the middle so he gets captured, and uh, Abram is going to go. Uh, he's going to go ham on this one. He's going to really uh, shock us with a little bit of non-typical Abram behavior. So, without further ado, verse fourteen through sixteen says, "When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, three hundred and eighteen of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them." to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So after Lot's capture, um, warrior Abram gets some of his guys together. They go guerrilla mode, the G-U-E kind, you know, where you do it kind of clandestine, not like the primate. Uh, and they go rescue Lot in the middle of the night. And it's kind of an interesting picture of Abram. I actually remember I had this book my mom got me. It was like the battles of the Bible, basically. And so it took like these things like this or um, think about like Joshua and stuff. And it like told you about the battles and stuff. It's a really good way to get a young boy interested in scripture because it was um, very engaging. Like, oh, wait, there's some fighting in there. Um, so I remember pretty specifically, there's this like picture of a angry Abram with this kind of like dagger to the side. And then he's like sneaking in these tents. And um, it's a very different picture of Abram. You know, you think Father Abraham, all that kind of stuff. But uh, apparently he was uh, at least decently trained in uh, combat as well. As he says, he led his trained men. So there you go. They get Lot back. Um, and that's actually kind of when things really get interesting. Um, and Abram meets this interesting figure, moving down to verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who
who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this seemingly random guy named Melchizedek comes and he's got bread and wine. He's breaking out the good stuff and he blesses Abram and he blesses God. And so we see that he was a priest of God. And this is God Most High. It's El Elyon is how that is uh, what that's translated from uh, a title that's pretty common for God. This is a clear indicator that we're talking about Yahweh. Um, so it's not just some other God Most High that is considered Most High. This is our God. This is Yahweh, El Elyon. Um, and so then we also see, um, oh, I, I forgot to read the last little part. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So also Abram tithes to him. So very interesting. And then just like that, he's gone. Okay, next, now we got king of Sodom again. So um, he was one of the ones involved in the battle. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, um, which was uh, Jerusalem, most likely. Um, that is probably where uh, the same Jerusalem that Israel will possess going forward is. He was the king of that before uh, Israel took ownership of it. And then, yeah, so Melchizedek. Is gone, and so he comes up really briefly in Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, and it says the Messiah is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and so we don't really get much about who this Melchizedek fella is until we get all the way to Hebrews 7, all the way to Hebrews. Hebrews is pretty far back there from Genesis 14, so he kind of is this uh, mysterious sort of figure. I want to say mythical in that there's probably this like higher maybe view of him uh, probably in that time than he probably merited, but not that he was fake. Um, and so he's just very, so we'll end up spending a lot of time actually today in Hebrews 7, kind of unpacking what it means for Jesus to be in the order of Melchizedek, what his significance is. So um, it's going to be Hebrews 7. So we'll jump over there and we will see a little bit more about who he is. So starting in verse 1. We see this it says for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And by and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so there's a decent amount to um, unpack here. So again, King of Salem, um, that was the physical location of that was probably Jerusalem. So Salem um, comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which you probably heard, which means peace. Um, so that's why he's saying that he is uh, also, he's king of righteousness, king of peace. That Melchizedek, um, is it's a two words put together. It's king and uh, king and righteousness put together. So that's where he gets king of righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness. His title means king of peace. So uh, not only does that sound a little bit familiar, like a certain member of the Trinity we know, but also uh, pretty, pretty high uh, name, pretty high title for this fellow that just randomly appeared in Abram's story. So um, you can see he's unique, this description in verse three, especially without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life or resembling the son of God, he continues to preach forever. You're like, okay, uh, that doesn't happen a lot. We don't hear a lot of people described that way. So we know this is a unique guy. Uh, I think the question is, it's like, okay, well, who exactly is this guy? Uh, and it has been this description in verse three, uh, and then just kind of the overall mystique of him that has led some people to believe 
that this might be Jesus incarnate in the Old Testament. So obviously we know Jesus incarnates at the uh, at Christmas, at his birth. So incarnate, taking on flesh. Um, so some have conjectured that this could be Jesus in the flesh before the virgin birth. Now, uh, I doubt this for a couple of reasons, and I'll jump into that um, because it is important. Because there are people who believe that. Um, there's two reasons for me to doubt it. First, um, just as a general rule, and this is a rule I think you should adopt too, one you're probably not struggling with, but I'll say it anyway. I will not decide that anyone in scripture is God unless it is absolutely clear. Okay, so if I believe that Melchizedek is Jesus incarnate in Genesis 14, then when I read that verse, my heart should be led to worship Melchizedek. Okay, so if Melchizedek is in fact not Jesus, my heart is being led to worship just a person, which would be a form of idolatry. So I think we have to be really careful anytime we say, oh yeah, that was probably Jesus incarnate. Like, well, if it's Jesus, me reading about him, seeing what he does should lead me to worship him. So if Melchizedek is not Jesus, which I do not believe he is, and I'll jump into that in the second reason, um, then I, if he's not Jesus, then I am committing idolatry. I'm worshiping a, a man, not God. So that's just a general rule. Anytime you see anyone in scripture, if you're not certain they're God, in fact, I'll just go ahead and tell you, uh, outside of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, no one is God in scripture. So you, I do not think need to worry about it. Uh, then we should not ascribe uh, deity to anyone that we're not absolutely sure because we should worship the Trinity. And so therefore anyone who is ascribed membership in the Trinity should be worshiped. So if they're not, then we're kind of committing idolatry. So that's maybe a little dramatic, but I think is important to keep. I don't think any of you were worried about worshiping Melchizedek, but you better not know. Uh, so the second reason is more um, grammatical and lexical. They're really fun stuff. So one time, I may have told this story before, but one time uh, I was going on vacation with my grandparents while I was in seminary, and I had just finished uh, writing this uh, really long exegetical paper, and part of it was doing word studies. And so I learned how to do uh, Greek word studies, and I was just really fascinated by it, found it really interesting. And so we got stuck in traffic, and the, the trip overall was like 11 hours. So we got stuck in traffic like on the front end, so we had a lot to go. And I was like, well, I might as well tell you about my Greek paper. And I'm not joking, I probably talked for 45 minutes to an hour straight to them about the paper. And this was while um, my nan was in the back groaning, like, please stop, please, I don't want to hear anymore. And I was like, well, we're not going anywhere. You might as well just listen to this. So um, I, I do enjoy the aspect of getting to do some grammatical lexical work. Um, I won't uh, make you all listen to what my exegetical was about. So count yourself lucky, but you are going to listen to what one of these words is about. So one of the reasons that some people have, in addition to everything else that's in verse three, it's this resembling the son of God, he continues to priest forever. That word resembling, which is obviously a translation, um, and that's the ESV's translation, um, that has led some people to say, okay, he's like maybe in the form of the son of God. So um, in Philippians two, we see that Jesus says that Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider quality with God something to be grasped. So we don't believe that he was just an image, or I say he was an image of God, but he wasn't just an image of God. He was also God himself, okay? He wasn't just a picture of God. He also is God. So same idea. Maybe maybe when it says resembling the Son of God, it's meaning that he is God. Well, 
Um, first of all, let's go, mm, let's go grammatical first. Okay, grammatical first. Um, so this is a participle, which those of you who are grammar people um, know that that's basically uh, like a verbal noun. Okay, so it's got this verb noun kind of um, mix in verbal nouns, probably not the right way to put it, but it's a uh, word that is made to uh, have a, it's got a verbal root, but it's got a kind of a special function. And in Greek, the, um, the Greek participle is especially uh, unique and meaningful. So yeah, verbal noun is probably not the way I would use to describe it, but um, the verb embedded in it is actually uh, a passive. So this is a perfect passive participle. So that basically you could translate this being made to resemble the son of God. Okay. That's the idea. So active meaning I'm the actor passive meaning I'm being acted upon. He threw the ball. The ball was thrown being the passive. So this is saying he's resembling the son of God. It's in passive form. So it's basically saying he was made to resemble. There was some other actor here um, causing the resemblance, so to speak. So that is the grammatical reason. Jesus uh, doesn't, no one has to make Jesus do anything. Okay. So no one makes Jesus into anything. Jesus is who he is. Okay. So he doesn't need to be made to resemble the son of God. He is the son of God. So that's one reason that I do not think that this would mean that he is the son of God. Melchizedek is the son of God, um, but rather is resembling. And then the lexical reason. So this is a word in the New Testament. We have a term for it we use. It's one of the hapax legomena. So a, a hapax legomenon, the singular of it, is a word that appears only once in the corpus of scripture. Okay, and the hapax legomena is the the whole group of them that appear only once in scripture. So that makes it difficult for us to correctly interpret it and translate it because we don't have any other examples in scripture to help us understand it. So when that happens, um, there's so many good resources out there. One of the best ones is a Liddell, Liddell Scott Jones. Um, basically it's a, a collection of Greek works. Um, and so you can look up in extra biblical Greek literature, some uses of this word. And so you can, it can help you understand what the meaning behind this word is. So I looked at three different examples and all of them refer to something that um, is either made to resemble or made into, um, uh, one of them was like, if you don't have like a smooth bit for a horse and you only have a rough bit, well, be gentle on the reins so that it seems like it's a soft bit. That's kind of the resembling, make it seem like it. So that's kind of the um, the extra biblical Greek literature uh, behind it. So all of that to say, resembling seems like an excellent translation. And we know that just because something resembles something, it is not it. So all that to say, I do not believe that Melchizedek is actually Jesus, but rather he is a type. Okay, so we see many, there are many instances in scripture of Christological types. So a Christological type being something that points to Christ himself. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, Old Covenant, which a big part of that was the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system points to Christ's ultimate sacrifice once for all, right? Um, and even uh, David is a Christological type because he is a king and he has this lineage that's going to continue forever. And we see that ultimately realized 
in Christ. So Christ was a, or David was a king after the heart of God. Christ is a king that is God. So we have these types throughout the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, before we know, we fully uh, revealed the mystery that um, Jesus would uh, come and dwell among us. And so Melchizedek exists as a type. And so the author of Hebrews then is going to, no, we got to, well, yes. Let's go, let's go ahead. Yes. So the author of Hebrews makes this point. Um, it says in verse four, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So the author of Hebrews is making this point that Abram tithed to and was blessed by Melchizedek and that that means that he was a greater figure. Okay. So you don't pay tithes to, um, and he's speaking specifically to the, um, like, as if you're giving your money to God, God doesn't give money to you. He lets you steward his money, but you give what he's steward back to him. So he's saying that if you are tithing to someone and that person blesses you, that shows that that person is greater. It's like the old medieval kind of image of the, um, of the Pope uh, crowning the King. Like it showed that, um, the church had greater power than the monarchy, which of course the monarchs eventually didn't like. So um, he's basically using this example of Abram tithing to and being blessed by Melchizedek as a springboard to explain why the new covenant through Jesus is better than the old covenant through the Levitical priesthood. So that's kind of the point he's going to make. So we'll skip on down to Hebrews 7, 11 through 14 and get a little more on that. It says, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Okay, so the point here, this is the rationale. We couldn't be perfected through the old priesthood, which was representative of the old covenant of Moses. So sacrificial system, talked about it a little bit um, last week too. Um, these promises from God that the people of Israel be blessed for obedience and cursed for disobedience. So we see there ultimately the um, struggles they go through in the period of Judges, through Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, ultimately into the exile, um, that the disobedience, their following of idols, led them to ultimately be exiled from their land. So that was the Old Covenant. Um, so he's saying we couldn't be perfected through the Old Covenant, and that a change of priesthood, which with Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, changes not only who the priest is, but the priesthood itself. And that means that the law has changed. The covenant has changed. Okay, so Jesus, like Melchizedek, so let's think about this. Melchizedek is a priest before the Levitical priesthood exists. Okay, so Melchizedek is this specially chosen figure to be priest of the Most High God. He is not just someone who, by birth, like the Levitical priesthood, happened to be priest. How did that happen? Who was he a priest to when he wasn't hanging out with Abram? No idea. Absolutely no idea how that all worked out. That's probably a mystery. We will never know this side of heaven. But he was specially chosen. It wasn't uh, any sort of lineage like we see in the Old Testament. So um, Jesus, like Melchizedek, is specially chosen, a trinity, 
choosing Jesus as the one who will be the high priest. And so he's not made high priest by nature of biology. That's the point that he's making in verse 14. He said, Jesus was descended from Judah and Moses said nothing about priests that come from Judah. So therefore he was specially chosen. And not only is he specially chosen as a priest, but also Jesus, like Melchizedek, is both priest and king. So that's another unique aspect of Melchizedek that points to Jesus. That is that type of Jesus. No, nowhere else do we see someone that was denoted for all time to be both priest and king. So Melchizedek is that type in the Old Testament. Jesus is that fulfillment of this better version of this type because he doesn't die. Jesus, we know, though he did die, he was raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven. So Jesus is like Melchizedek in that he is both king and priest, but he doesn't die. His priesthood goes on forever. His kingdom goes on forever. We're going to see a little bit more about of that explained here, moving down to verse 20. We'll read through the end of this chapter. It says, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus is better than this old priesthood because he is priest by nature of this oath. And this oath is, you are a priest forever. You are in this order of Melchizedek that you will be both king and priest, but not just as long as you live forever. His priesthood is eternal because he is eternal. His kingdom is for eternal because he is eternal. He's better in quality and quantity. He didn't have to go and make sacrifices for himself because he was perfect. He was himself the sacrifice. That's a better quality of priest. It's not a sinner who is by grace allowed to draw near to God on behalf of the people. Instead, it is God himself who by the very person that he is, is able to draw near to God. And not only that, but instead of a priesthood that lasts 30, 40 years, it's a priesthood that lasts forever. No more order of priests, no more biological denotion as a priest. He is chosen. He is drawn by an oath. He is held by an oath. He is affirmed by an oath that he is a priest forever. And he lives forever. He always lives to make intercession for us, like it says in verse 25. So this Melchizedek that we see in, Ab- or in uh, Genesis 14, 
who comes to Abram, who Abram recognizes as this person of, of great importance that he gives tithes to, that he is blessed by, is ultimately this type that we see fully realized in Christ because Melchizedek wasn't perfect. He wasn't without sin. He did die, but Jesus is perfect. He did not die. He is a king. He is a priest forever. So we can see, and the way I think that we apply this is, it's just another reminder that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of scripture, including the Abrahamic covenant, including the Mosaic covenant. Okay, so we talked about the Abrahamic covenant last week. We'll get to the Mosaic covenant down the line, but he's the ultimate fulfillment of both of those covenants. He is the one who is no longer a type, no longer a shadow. He's the substance. He's not the moon casting the reflection. He's the sun, pun intended. Okay, so he is the one that was all these things have been pointing to. So as we read scripture, we have to remember that Jesus isn't just this figure who stumbles along at the right time. He, from the very beginning, it's planned that he would be the one who would be the fulfillment of all these things. That should lead us to worship. That should lead us to worship a God who has such a beautiful plan of redemption that he thought nothing less than God himself was good enough to sacrifice for us. He cared. He loved us that much. He is just he is good. And the last thing before we finish, we belong to a kingdom that's ruled by our high priest who's perfect forever. We are in a kingdom that cannot be overtaken. We have a high priest who will not die, who is always sufficient because he was sufficient once for all when he offered himself up. We are so blessed and fortunate to belong to such a king, to such a kingdom, to such a priest, to such a God as New Testament believers. And we get the joy of looking back on the grander story and seeing the beauty of it unfold. So I hope I didn't bore you too much with my uh, grammatical and lexical talk. I hope that the part that really stood out is that Jesus is this incredible fulfillment that through our faith in him, we enter into his kingdom, into his priesthood. It's one that is perfect and it's one that lasts forever. Mm-hmm.